Please open up in your Bibles to Jude, chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 11 through 13 this morning, though um, we're going to initially read starting at verse 5 and then on, so if you want to open verse 5, that works. Well, as we've been walking through Jude, one thing is quite clear about the epistle. It's quite fiery, and it has a lot to say about false teachers. As I was thinking through how it would be uh, most wise to address the issues in our text this morning, I was thinking about a potential pitfall that we, as Christians, can fall into when looking at texts about false teachers. We can be tempted to think only externally. That is, we may only look outside to the wolves, and and that's good, and that's right, and that's what Jude is talking about in his epistle. But there's a danger in never considering how the principles that Jude speaks of should pierce our own hearts. There's a way in which we can so be concerned with this issue that we forsake how these things speak about our own sins. This epistle is exegetically about false teachers in the church. That's just what it's about. It's about exposing them, warning about them, foretelling their destruction. And we can't be too safe when we talk about the dangers of false teachers. They have led many millions and even billions astray. And so we're going to continue to reiterate that danger and listen to what Jude says. But it's really important to grasp that what these false teachers were doing in the church was deceiving Christians. Not all the people that they deceived were false believers. Some were genuine, and they were tricked, and they were led astray, and they followed after the errors of these men. And so also, I think it's good for us to be warned about our own hearts. We must make note of the sins that Christians have been prone to fall prey to, both then and now. The danger is not only out there in false teaching. There is a great danger in the hearts of even Christians, in their flesh, in our sin, and we must prepare to do battle against both. Jude gives us, in our text this morning, more fingerprints of false teachers. If you remember the last time we were in Jude, we talked about that. Uh, But like I said, I especially want to focus on the sins that you and I face that this text kind of brings up. The glory of God demands that we always examine ourselves carefully. May the Spirit of God this morning strike our hearts and protect us from falling into the same errors that many Christians have throughout history. Uh, In our particular text this morning, Jude expounds on two major points. First, he talks about the intentions, the desires, and the marks of false teachers, and talks about how they are as old as humanity. These men didn't do anything new or novel. They rode down the same river that evil persons have always rode down. And second, Jude talks about how false teachers often look like they may be useful and genuine, but in reality, they're like weeds. They're not just useless. They kill the grass. They're worse than useless. We're going to read verses 5 through 13. We're going to pray, and then we're going to more specifically look at verses 11 through 13. Let's read. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's errors, and perished in Korah's rebellion." 
These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask for your help. Lord, my words are just words. My thoughts are just thoughts, Lord. But your spirit has the power to stir even the most hardened heart, to prick even the most seared conscience. Lord, this morning, would you draw your people nearer to yourself in love and devotion and holiness and a concern for righteousness? Would you protect us from these errors, Lord? Protect us from false teachers. Protect us from our own sinful flesh. Lord, if there's any burdens on our hearts this morning, would you help us to focus and concentrate on your word and on the work that your spirit is doing in our hearts. May you be pleased, glorified, honored by the preaching of your word this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In verses 5 through 7, just for a quick review, Jude used a triplet of examples to warn that God justly judges unrighteousness. He talked about Israel, he talked about angels, and he talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's done judgment in the past. And so he will again do it in the future. In verses 8 through 10, a couple weeks ago, we looked at how he described the specific errors of false teachers. They relied on false dreams and visions. They defiled themselves with their sin. They were prideful and presumptuous. And at the heart of their rebellion was a rejection of Jesus as their master. Let's now take a look at verse 11 more closely. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. You know things are about to get a little more intense when he starts off with woe to them. Woe to them, eternal danger and fiery blazing wrath rushed towards these men. They were in not just a little bit of danger, significant eternal peril. And so he pronounces a woe over them. What, are, what was this woe for specifically? He answers with another triplet here in verse 11. Three examples from the Old Testament. They walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. They perished in Korah's rebellion. And uh, if you have your observation hats on and you're looking at the text, you might notice that there's a definite increase in the intensity of these verbs. They walked and then they abandoned themselves. Some translations say they rushed into, and then they perished. Walked, abandoned, perished. Their error intensified. They were not content with a little wickedness, a little error. They rushed headlong towards destruction, more and more so. Jude points our attention to Old Testament stories to demonstrate that the errors of these false teachers are really nothing new. It's not a novel thing. Their actions are just like the ungodly men of old. He begins with Cain. Cain, as many of you know, was uh, part of the first family, Adam and Eve's son. And we see his story in Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read a segment from Genesis 4 so we can all be on the same page about what this story says. Abel, Cain's brother, was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The question on many people's minds when they read this story is, why did God reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's? I've heard a lot of theories about 
why this is the case. I think it's safest to stick with what God has told us. And so when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, it's a bit of commentary on this story. Here's what we read. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So, by implication, when we look at this text in Hebrews 11, Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable for two reasons. First, Cain didn't offer his sacrifice by faith, and second, Cain was unrighteous. In Hebrews 11, it says God commended Abel as righteous by accepting his sacrifice. The acceptance of the sacrifice was a nod to God's approval of Abel's righteous deeds. So, by implication, the opposite is true for Cain. Because Cain was unrighteous, God did not regard his offering. Jude's inclusion of false teachers who walk in the way of Cain probably isn't about murder. Uh, That's usually the first sin we think of when we consider Cain, but it doesn't really fit with the context. The whole point is these men are secretive, they're deceptive, they look good on the outside, but they're rotten on the inside. If someone was in your church and murdering people, you would probably think they were not up to any good. So I doubt that murder is the issue on his mind. I think what he's talking about is that these men follow in the faithless and unrighteous footsteps of Cain despite appearing religious. I think Cain was archetypal. He brought a sacrifice to God. You've got to consider this. Like, he brought a real, actual sacrifice. He took from his labor and sacrificed to bring it and offer it to God. He lost something in an act of supposed worship. He acted religious in this sense. So what was his problem? His problem was with his heart. I imagine that if the Lord saw fit to make you or I an observer of this event, we might have walked away thinking that Cain did right. From what we could observe, he offered a sacrifice. We might say, man, looks good. It had the appearance of proper worship. But the substance of what worship is, the essence of honoring God, that was totally missing. And this danger of formal but empty religious ceremonies clutches not only false teachers, but is a very real danger for you and I at our church here in this time. Any man can appear righteous. It's really not that hard. Any man can appear to worship God. You come to church, you sit in the seats, you sing your songs, you listen to the sermon. Wicked, righteous, regenerate or not, you can look like you're honoring the Lord. But religious ceremonies in and of themselves do not speak to the condition of your heart. Proverbs 21 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. This is, in one sense, ironic because the wicked person is offering a sacrifice. He's not saying, I want nothing to do with God. No, there he is at the temple bringing his bull, but he's wicked, and so it is an abomination to God. Now, you and I, we don't offer atoning animal sacrifices to God. The Lord Jesus is our once-for-all atoning sacrifice. We now, as Christians, bring a different kind of offering to the Lord. Romans 12 speaks about this. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our lives are our sacrifices to God, our very lives. Uh, We worship God in spirit and in truth. We're not bringing animals to a temple anymore. It's our living. It's how we act It's how we speak. It's how we work. And especially, it's our formal worship of God. It's our studying and our singing. It's our praying and our proclaiming. It's our gathering here on the Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Supper. It's things like these that are our new covenant sacrifices. That's what we're offering to God. Brothers and sisters, 
God despised Cain's sacrifice because of the disposition of his heart. We must beware of bringing our sacrifices to God with the same kind of heart that Cain had. That's relevant for all of us this morning at our church, sitting in the seats. It doesn't automatically mean God is pleased by what we're doing. Our adversary seeks to draw our hearts away from sincere worship to empty, meaningless ceremonies. Thomas Watson had this quote about this. I thought it was excellent. He said this, Satan does not oppose profession, but sincerity. Let men go to church and make glorious pretenses of holiness. Satan does not oppose this. This does him no harm and them no good. But if men want to be sincerely pious, then Satan musters up all his forces against them. That's an excellent point. Psalm 51 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's the sincere heart that pleases God in our worship. The Spirit of God must foster in our hearts conviction and affections for God, which naturally flow into sincere worship. If you've ever visited the Grand Canyon, I've heard, I've never actually stopped and, and looked at it, but I've heard you can't, be help, you, you can't help but be struck with a twinge of awe. You just, you just are. You're beholding this, and you're, you're just aware of how grand it is, how small you are. To be in awe at grand things is built into our nature. We're, we're designed to marvel. We're designed to be in awe. So how can we who commune with God's Spirit as Christians, how can we who have tasted His goodness and received His mercy in salvation and hear from His Word, how can our worship be insincere and faithless and disengaged and still be seen as acceptable? If rocks make us feel in awe and we can't feel in awe of God, how will He accept our worship why would he be pleased by that? Worship is a vehicle that articulates the attitude of your heart. That's what it's designed for. When you come here, you must, with sincere hearts, offer your praise to God. If our worship is rote and artificial, it's because we have a sickness in our soul. Now, I recognize our hearts are sluggish. They're often sluggish. And our worship can become an act of duty. You wake up in the morning, you don't feel like you're, you're quiet times. You're just, you're not in the mood, but you do it. But duty and discipline are good. Those are good things, provided that they stem from a rooted conviction that we must glorify God with our lives. Appearances for the sake of self-gain is what the Lord hates. That's hypocrisy. Duty and discipline are good, but still, still, even if it's just an act of duty, even if it's just discipline, does not the greatness of our God deserve the best that our hearts can offer? Does His goodness not deserve our affections? He's greater than the Grand Canyon, <laughs> Is it not a sign of sin that we can commune with God, commune with His Holy Spirit, and yet have a sluggish heart? The angels, I was thinking about this, we, we read in Revelation and in Isaiah, that they, they surround the throne of God, and it says they endlessly worship Him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Day and night, same thing. And the glory of God never becomes dull to them. It's never lessened in their praise. They never become familiar with it. Every time they say it, it's genuine. May we learn from the angelic example, and may our worship be pure and acceptable. Brothers and sisters, watch your hearts carefully. Examine yourself before you come to church on a Sunday. 
Examine your hearts and prepare yourself to worship the Lord. Honestly, practically, I think sometimes Sunday mornings, you get crazy. You're trying to get clothes on kids, and you're trying to get breakfast, and you're trying to get out the door on time. It might require planning ahead, laying out clothes on Saturday nights, having these things ready so that Sunday morning is not frantic, where our minds aren't pulled in a thousand directions. It's devoted to sincere and genuine worship of the Lord. If we struggle in this arena, may we come to the Lord in prayer and not leave our knees until our hearts are filled with love for him that expresses itself in worship. Now, if you're examining yourself, if you're thinking about how, I think we're all guilty of this on some level, in some cases, there's one question that's worthy of addressing, which is why. Why do we bother? I mean, if our hearts aren't sincere, if we really aren't, aren't meaning it at times, why bother with the empty formalities? That's exactly, I think, what Jude deals with in the next example that he gives. He says that these false teachers rushed into Balaam's error for the sake of gain. For the sake of gain. I'm going to come back around to it. Let me just explain a little bit about Balaam. The book of Numbers, after Israel had some significant military victories, the king of Moab was understandably terrified because they're coming to take the land. And so the king of Moab, his name was Balak, he hired Balaam, who was a pagan prophet, to go and curse Israel. What happens instead is that God speaks through even this pagan prophet to bless Israel in violation of Balak's wishes. It's, a, it's an epic story, Numbers 21 and, uh, and following, uh, worthy of revisiting if you've not uh, been, been in that text for a while. 2 Peter 2 tells us that Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. When you read the story in Numbers, there does seem to be repeated reference to the money that Balaam was to receive from Balak for this task of cursing Israel. Jude tells us the false teachers abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam's error is kind of vague. What exactly is the error being talked about? Well, I think because of the for the sake of gain and the 2 Peter 2 text, uh, it makes it really seem like it was the greedy desire that drove Balaam, and that also drives these false teachers. It was greed, greed in their hearts. In other words, why bother with offering sacrifices if you're not genuine? Simple, for self-gain. For self-gain, that's why. For the men in Jude's day, it seems money was in mind. That seems to be the clearest understanding of this. But the deeper principle underneath the monetary greed was selfishness. They wanted to do things for themselves instead of in worship of God. Church, may we be warned. There are many modern benefits to looking and acting like a Christian that have nothing to do with the gospel. Consider things we gain for being called Christians and being a part of a church. We gain friendship. We gain a trust, trustworthy and generous community. We often gain approval of our family, our spouses, children, parents. We gain relative safety, cultural approval, though that's shifting in these days. We gain a rich and historic intellectual tradition. We get free coffee. We get a safe place to raise kids. I mean, there are real legitimate benefits that aren't directly tied to the gospel that come from being a part of our community. But we have to understand then that there's a danger there. Those are God's blessings. But there is a danger when we hyper-focus on the blessings. Instead of it costing us to be a Christian, it now pays to be a Christian for many of us. So then, the question is, how many here deceive themselves into believing they are right with God when really they have come to be a part of our covenant community to receive those benefits that aren't the gospel. Lord, show us our hearts in this. Here's a test. I think it's helpful to think about and ponder. If tomorrow we had nothing as a church, no building, no AC, no chairs, no comforts, no amenities, and if tomorrow coming to church meant you might lose absolutely everything in your life, your riches, your comforts, your full bellies, your health, 
your very lives, if every benefit of Christianity was stripped away from you, if your family turned on you because you came, if it cost you to be here, if everything was gone but Christ, would you still come? Really, would you still be here? If you and your family might die, would Christ be enough? Would zeal for his glory still compel you to worship? Woe to those who make their Christianity a Christianity of benefits rather than a Christianity based on the gospel. Yes, the Lord has graciously given us so many blessings as Christians. There are benefits. But test your heart regularly. Do not serve God's blessing instead of God. I was thinking about this And I was thinking about um, Polycarp. He he was a disciple of the Apostle John in the very early church. He was martyred. And there's a martyrdom account uh, about the story of of how he was killed. And I just, it was, he words things so well, I, I thought I'd read it. This is what the account of his martyrdom records. The proconsul, the, the man trying him, said, or sorry, urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How could I blaspheme my king and savior? And he died. He didn't die with comfortable benefits. He didn't die with anything but Christ's kindness and a lifetime of love from the Lord. And that was enough. When all the worldly benefits were removed, Christ remained May our faith be much the same as his. Listen, to those who are younger, kids, teenagers, if you're in the room this morning, you likely come to church because your parents come to church. And and that's good. But this might be all the more relevant for you. One day soon, you will have to choose. Will you offer praise to God in church because you are zealous for the glory of the Lord? Because you love God or because it's what your parents want for you to do, and you want to please them. Don't consider yourself a Christian just because you go to church with your parents. Listen to the gospel when we talk about it every week. Believe in Jesus for salvation. A lot of you know the facts about Christianity. That's not salvation. Knowing a lot about the Bible is not salvation. Cry out to Jesus to change your heart, and to give you a love for God that's distinct from your parents, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. The third on Jude's list in verse 11 says that they perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion was a rebellion that happened during the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Korah was a Levite, and he and his crew said this. It's from the book of Numbers. Aaron and Moses have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you, in reference to Moses and Aaron, exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? So Korah and his rebellion felt that Moses and Aaron had hoarded power And so he incited a rebellion against them. He disturbed the peace of Israel at that time. After a test to publicly show who God had actually chosen, here's what God did to Korah and his followers, number 16. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Dramatic, supernatural judgment. The entire rebellious assembly, who didn't recognize the legitimate authority of God and Moses and Aaron, they died in the wilderness. And Jude states that these false teachers perished in that same rebellion. They too rejected authority. Not the authority of Moses, but the authority of the better Moses, the prophet who is better than Moses, of the Lord Jesus. 
They didn't listen to our Lord's commandments. They didn't believe their evil deeds would bring about judgment. And that lack of regard for Jesus' authority disturbed the churches just as Korah's rebellion disturbed the community of Israel. Because they reject Christ's authority, they suffer the same fate as Korah, divine destruction and judgment. Three examples, all given to show how false teachers aren't novel, they're not new, they follow the same old patterns. And thus, three warnings also for us as Christians of attitudes and actions to beware that even we as regenerate born-again believers can fall into for a time. In verse 12 and 13, Jude then goes on to use several metaphors to describe how utterly useless, worse than useless actually, these men are and how they are deceptive and dangerous. Let's read verses 12 through 13. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. All right, if nothing else, I'm convinced that these verses uh, really tell us that Jude was a preacher. He's got those illustrations and the increasing intensity down. Uh, It really shows that here. So, he begins with, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, so they feast with you without fear. So, two questions, what's a love feast, what's a hidden reef? Well, a love feast was, quite simply, feasts or meals that churches would hold for the sake of Christian fellowship, not unlike a church picnic that we might be having in a few weeks. A hidden reef was a nautical term. You might also see hidden rock or something like that. It's used to describe rocks or reefs that were just beneath the surface of the water. They're invisible, yet very deadly for ships. You see the parallel here. As the church gathers together for fellowship, among them is a wolf hidden, and they're not realizing that they're sailing towards destruction, towards these hidden reefs. Our adversary's designs are most crafty. He doesn't employ just one way of attacking God's people. When we think of Satan's onslaught, a lot of times we think of Christianity being besieged. We think of persecution. Uh, Yet often throughout history, persecution serves to strengthen the church in an interesting, uh, ironic way. There's greater faithfulness and strength and unity in times of overt persecution in many cases. And so the, the enemy does make use of that, certainly, but also he strikes from within. And it is often his, his inward, internal designs that are most damaging. You know, one soldier in a war may kill a few opponents, but a well-placed spy can turn the entire tide of a war. Has not history told us that the most devastating and long-lasting attacks to Christianity have been by false doctrine in the church and by division? In the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew chapter 13, the enemy comes and he sows wheat, or I'm sorry, he sows weeds into this field that was used for wheat growth. Now, stretching this parable a little bit, it's talking about the whole world, not just the church, but still, I think there's elements of it that hold. Why would the enemy do this? What's his goal? What's his plan for sowing weeds among the wheat? Well, to keep the harvest from being as plentiful as it would otherwise be. That's why. 1 Timothy 6 describes men who fit this bill. It says that he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Jude, in the next statement, says that they feast without fear. I think this is a profound statement. They feast without fear. What didn't they fear? They didn't fear God. Only a fool boldly speeds when there's a cop in the parking lot and doesn't care. Perhaps these men didn't even believe God existed. Perhaps they had deceived themselves into thinking they were right with God. I don't know. It doesn't much matter. Fools they were who boldly strode into the midst of God's people, fearlessly defied the Almighty God, and led his sheep 
into sin. Jesus had something to say about men who do this. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. They should have trembled to dare lift a hand against God's people. I want to speak for a moment about fearing God. The fear of the Lord is a peculiar and specific characteristic of God's people. It's something that decidedly marks Christians. I have a friend in Illinois who, with some regularity, would come to me absolutely struck by his sin. And he would be um, fearful about his status before God. Uh, he, He would literally tremble, I mean shaking uncontrollably, at the thought he might not be right with God because his works demonstrated that he was a sinner. He worried about this so much, I regularly I'd walk through with him about how we can have assurance of eternal life, but I thought it was ironic when he would come in one sense, because if his fear was genuine, if it wasn't just whipped up, if it wasn't an act, then it revealed he really understood his unworthiness. He really grasped the utter holiness of his God. And he really hated his sin. He hated it. It was this very concern and this fear that to me demonstrated that his faith was in fact genuine. Please don't misunderstand. I am not telling you that in order to be right with God, you have to doubt your salvation. That's not what I'm saying, no. But the man who's been born again quakes when he considers his sin. When he comes to his senses, he shudders in his heart to think he has dishonored the Lord. What if I fall into temptation again? That man asks. What if the discipline of the Lord comes upon me and my heart doesn't change? It's a recognition. God is holy and I've sinned. It's a recognition that apart from the grace of God, I and you would certainly be cast into hell. God could destroy us. God should destroy us. And our fear acknowledges that we deserve not the least blessing from the Lord's hand. We have not earned the right to grace. That's not what grace is. We've earned nothing. We are worms before him. We can't presume. Favor isn't something we're, we're owed. God's forgiveness is a gift. That's it. It's for God's good pleasure. And if he is not pleased to forgive us, what will you do but perish in hell? The, the godly man knows this, knows it's a gift, and thus trembles before God. It says, Lord, I have nothing to cling to but mercy, mercy, Lord, mercy. These depraved men knew nothing of sackcloth and ashes. They knew nothing of the fear of God. And so what of you this morning, O Christian, do you fear God? Do you fear God's holiness? Proverbs 8 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Are you numb to sin? Do you really care about sin because it grieves God or because there's consequences. How many times have you time and time again returned to the same sin, like a dog to vomit? How many secret sins plague your heart this day that you're trying to not think of right now? How many times have you generalized your sin before others? as a way to escape the reality of your evil deeds? How many times have you said to yourself, I just, I won't do this again, and then I won't have to tell anyone, because it'll be fixed, only to do the same thing again and again and again, and still repeat that line to yourself? Spurgeon once said, if there are any of you living in sin, I don't care what doctrines you've received, or what experiences you may boast. 
I am afraid for you if you are not afraid for yourselves. Do I have your attention? Then let this verse create a fear of the Lord in your heart. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If you have no concern for your sin, if you make a practice of sinning, you are in a perilous state. And you ought to tremble and fear the justice of the Lord. But Proverbs 19 also says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. There is, even for you in your current state, grace enough. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. There is hope for you yet. Don't cling to your sin. Don't coddle it. Don't hide it. Don't despise when God shoots you with arrows and your conscience is pricked. When God stirs your heart to hate sin, it's like what David describes in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. If that's you, do not ignore the Holy Spirit. The gospel is for sinners like you. Let the fear of the Lord drive you to repentance and let the mercy of the Lord lead you to faith. Say with the sinner David, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Listen, if grace was sufficient to save the adulterous, murderous King David then it's sufficient enough to save you. Verse 12, continuing on. These men are also shepherds feeding themselves. Now this seems like Jude is alluding to Ezekiel 34, a text which talks about shepherds, spiritual leaders who don't care for the sheep, but only care for themselves. Ezekiel 34 reads, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I am against the shepherds. On a day of clouds and thick darkness, the fat and the strong I will destroy. False teachers present themselves as authorities, as leaders, but shepherds are meant to sacrifice that the sheep may flourish. Leaders of God's people are meant to lose so that the sheep may gain. That's the image. How especially wicked then for shepherds, for those who are seemingly leaders to exploit God's people for personal gain. Woe also to any shepherd, any pastor, any leader in our day who cares for themselves, for their appearance, for their wallets, for their egos at the expense of the flock. Jude continues in this verse and in the next with four different examples now from four realms of nature, all of which make a similar point Talks about clouds in the sky, trees in the ground, waves in the sea, and stars in the heavens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zip over this kind of quickly for sake of time. Um, essentially, all of these illustrations demonstrate uselessness. Clouds carry rain that help grow crops. They're waterless clouds. They're good for nothing. Uh, fruitless trees in late autumn. Late autumn is near winter. There should be fruit at that point, but there's none. They're uprooted, they're fruitless, they're dead, they're good for nothing. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They're not useful for fishing, it's not beautiful, and it leaves behind a sticky, gross film on the shore. And last, they are wandering stars. Stars are tools of navigation. If stars unpredictably wandered in that day, how could you possibly navigate a boat? 
If you thought you were following a static star and it was moving, you would be way off course. You see why that image is very helpful. Unknowingly, people have followed these stars that wander and they end in destruction. They are shipwrecked because they don't follow something that is static and stable and true. Jude then ends with this section with uh, these men for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Utter darkness is reserved for men like this. It's a peculiar and specifically intense judgment. I'm going to actually talk about a lot of this next week because it kind of uh, is a transition into general judgment language, which is really what we'll be focusing on next week, about the judgment of the Lord, the way in which he judges people. And so we'll revisit this gloom of utter darkness next week. The plainest understanding of this text should be pretty clear. Like I said at the beginning, beware of those who sneak in and distort the Christian faith. There are many false prophets in the world. Don't be deceived by them, and for the sake of the integrity of God's people, don't tolerate them in the church. But also, there's a danger for if genuine Christians act like this in the church. Let's say we're not, as our church, the mission church, let's say we're not deceived by false teaching, but instead, Someone follows after these same errors. They offer insincere sacrifices to God, things like that. That will affect the whole church. It will affect the entire body. Remember the story of Achan in Joshua? After God destroyed Jericho, the people were told to destroy everything, and the most valuable things they were to take into the, tre- into the treasury of the Lord. Uh, The money wasn't meant for individual wealth, but for God. Achan, however, just thought he'd slip some under the radar and keep some personal wealth for himself. The next battle Israel went out to, and they fought against Ai, uh, went not well for Israel. They lost pretty badly. So they went to the Lord and inquired, why, God, have you done this? God pointed to Achan as the reason for their collective defeat. So the people killed Achan and his family, and then the Lord gave them victory over I. We are very Western. That means we think individualistically. We think about ourselves and how we, you know, how we manage things, how we think about things. We often don't think of the corporate effects of our sin. It is foolish to think that a private sin cannot have a public effect in the church. There are spiritual realities that exist, things that go beyond what's natural. Maybe we don't have the kind of false teachers that Jude is referencing here, but those who offer the sacrifices of Cain and share in the fellowship at our love feasts all at the same time hurt the church. I mean, if you spend time with a contagious man for a a lengthy period of time, will you not get sick? Scripture tells us we're members of a body. If the hand has a painful disease, is not the rest of the body affected? I get a little hangnail on my pinky. I feel like I can't do anything for a week. The smallest parts of us can deeply impact and influence the church. We must corporately fight for the purity of God's church, for repentance of sin, for holiness. One, because God's glory demands it. But two, because our health And fruitfulness as a church is affected by it. We have lots of desires as a church. We want to reach the lost. We want to raise godly children. We want to be fruitful in what we do. We want the kingdom to advance here in Utah. This is a genuine desire that um, is in many of our hearts. Satan can dampen our fruitfulness by sin left unchecked in the body. Your own sins, your sins that no one knows about could harm the effectiveness of the church. So, keep watch over your own souls. Keep watch over your own souls. Be quick to repent. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to not shield or hide your sin, not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of the church. Spurgeon put this so well. 
He said this, we are all as one body as soon as we join the Christian church. And in some sense, the sin of one is the common fault of the whole. Leaven in one chamber is leaven in the house. A plague in one house is a plague in the city. We must not say, oh, I can't help the fault of such a one. He is one with us. We must all be humbled before God when there is anything wrong in the case of anyone, for he is one of the family. We're a family. And as a church community, let us together fear God, repent of sin, bear one another's burdens, and may we through the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ be preserved until the day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we are just men. We're just people. We're not categorically different from so many Christians in the past, so many of those who have been born again who have fallen into grievous, deadly sins that have hurt your people. Lord, there's nothing in us that restrains us or keeps us from being utterly wicked. Nothing but your spirit working through your word and your people and the ordinary means of grace. And so, Lord, we cling to you and ask for your help. We ask for your help. Keep us holy, Lord, for your glory's sake. Lord, grant us a fear of you. Lord, we can't whip up a fear that doesn't exist in our hearts. We, we can't just pretend. It's not, it's not genuine then. We need your spirit to place into our souls the awe of your greatness, of your justice, and of your holiness. Would you strike us with a burden for our sins? Lord, would you help us to see where our sacrifices, our offerings, our worship of you is trite, where it's insincere, where it's a show and a sham and hypocritical. Lord, this is in our hearts. We confess it to you. We bring it to you. Help us, Lord. Help our church. Help our people here to offer right sacrifices. Lord, you are good and worthy. You deserve so much more than we can offer. We are so weak, and yet, and yet, we know that you've given us your spirit. We know that you are the shepherd of your people. You care for us, and you lead us. Down the paths of righteousness, you lead us. For your name's sake, you lead us. And so we ask, Lord, lead us. Lead our hearts Fix what's broken in us. Cause us to be an honorable, righteous covenant community, pleasing in your sight. Lord, sanctify the saints that are here today. And Lord, as we take communion in a moment now, would you help remind us of our sin and the burden of sin, of your righteousness and your holiness, and of the gospel Lord, of your forgiveness, of mercy and grace, of the Lord Jesus Christ slain on our behalf. Lord, let this act, this offering, communion, Lord, be genuine and sincere this morning. Not rote, not trite. We ask for your aid as your people, Lord. Sanctify us for your namesake. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.